Hello, welcome back to the National Podcast. I am National Av writer John Schneidman. My guest this week is science and environmental policy reporter for the Business Insider, Rafi Letster. We talked about Trump's environmental policy executive order from earlier in the week. Uh, that affects carbon emissions and just his climate change policy in general. We talked about Scott Pruitt. We talked about the EPA. It was a great talk. Uh, also, spoiler alert, a little existentially terrifying. Uh, but before we get there, <laughs> so the best laid plans, right? I was just in the middle of recording the intro to this podcast, uh, which included an extended diatribe about how liberals and Democrats need to not get too wrapped up in Russia conspiracy theories, how we can't be focusing all our energy on this, how we can't be looking for the silver bullet, how we shouldn't be listening to the Louise Menches and the Eric Garlands of the world. And just as I'm uploading the episode, the news comes across the wire that Michael Flynn is looking for immunity in exchange for testimony in relationship to the Russia case. So what does this mean? Who the fuck knows, <laughs> honestly? It, the article indicates that there are no takers yet. Um, who knows what information he has? It, it, it could just be a deal that his lawyers are, are asking for. It's like a starting place. Give us immunity and he'll testify. Well, what information does he have? Who knows what information he has? Uh, I, I don't know what Michael Flynn's position is. I, who knows what the feds have on him? I mean, he's, he's always been a shady guy, right? Uh, from the minute he entered Trump's orbit, we knew he was a shady guy. All the RT stuff, all the Russia stuff. You know, I, I'm not ready to lose my mind on it yet, I guess is what I'm saying. Because this could mean anything. This could just be a starting position. This could be a starting negotiating position. Um, maybe it'll bring down Trump. Who the fuck knows? But I don't, I don't think so. <laughs> you know, the thing I was saying... <laughs> Uh, in a diatribe that you will never hear <laughs> because of this breaking news, um, was that organizing and politics have been our greatest defense against Trump. You know, his health care bill went down because people were loud about how much they didn't want it. Uh, he has a 35% approval rating. That's because people are speaking out, people are organizing against him. There are rallies, all this shit. We're talking to, to our fellow people and people, our fellow citizens, sorry, and people are turning against him and that's good. That's what's going to bring him down. I don't know if it's going to be some silver bullet. I don't know if it's ever going to be time for game theory. I mean, the man, the man was literally caught on tape saying sexual assault is fun and good. And he won. He fucking won anyway. So... You know, let's keep doing what we're doing. The, the investigation, the Russian investigation, who knows where it'll lead? I mean, there sure is a lot of smoke there. But to put all our faith in that, that, you know, we want it to go away. We all want Trump to go away as quickly as possible. I, I certainly do. And I've certainly got wrapped up in these wild <laughs> game theories. I mean, I sent that Eric Garland thread to like 25 different people, and there are people listening to this podcast right now who are, who are one of those 25 people who are laughing because they remember how excitedly I sent that thing to them. Um, it, we all want a silver bullet. We all want to wake from this nightmare just like that. But I, I don't think it's going to happen that way. I really don't. 
I, I think it's going to take some people power. I don't think it's going to be some magical deus ex machina that means he can't be president anymore. I just don't think that's how it's going to work. Even in light of Michael Flynn maybe flipping. Who the fuck knows where that's going to lead. Anyway, that's my piece. Uh, I'm sure we'll know like 80,000 different things by the time you listen to this, but that's where I'm at right now as I record this thing. So, got that off my chest. Here it is, my talk with Rafi Letster. All right, so I was wondering if we could start uh, by going over the executive order that Trump signed a few days ago. Sure. Uh, Yeah, so the executive order, this has been a long time coming, and we've sort of gotten peaks at what was going to be in the executive order for a long time. But then uh, late Monday night, early, like real early Tuesday morning, Uh, late Monday night, real early yeah, Tuesday yeah. morning, a number of reporters got a look at sort of a preview um, of some of what, what was going to be in the order. And then it uh, Tuesday afternoon, uh, but by Tuesday morning, we really knew what the order was going to look like. Tuesday afternoon, he'd signed it. And basically the, the big sort of highlight of the executive order is that uh, it tells the EPA to roll back the clean power plan. Right. Um, and Clean power plan is basically, it's sort of the marquee uh, aspect of uh, former President Barack Obama's climate legacy, um, and it tells 47 of the 50 states, um, hey, all these electric plants you have going, you have to cut their carbon emissions by, you know, however many thousands of tons of carbon dioxide uh, by 2030 with the overall goal of uh, reducing reducing total carbon emissions 32% below 2005 levels by 2030. Right. Okay. And so do they, is that it? Is that just how it works? You can just tell them to do that and no. it's done? No. So, so, uh, so the, and the order isn't just that. The order sort of goes after a number of Obama policies. There's the, there's the uh, limit on where uh, coal companies can't, uh, coal companies weren't able to dig coal out of the ground on federal land for a really long time. Um, right. And uh, now with this order that he's able to just with the stroke of a pen, you can say coal companies, you can now dig coal out of the ground uh, on federal land. But the clean power plan, that's a regulation, um, which is sort of that's a technical, it's an official thing. Um, and the EPA under Obama had gone through this really long process, a really long, complicated process to put the clean power plan onto the books. And to get it off the books, you have to go through the same process, which can take years. Um, And uh, especially because there's probably lots of people at the EPA who aren't going to be thrilled about it, so there's going to be some internal bureaucracy to contend with. Um, And then, although the head of the EPA, Scott Pruitt, who's a, a Trump loyalist and not really a big fan of environmental regulations is definitely going to be pushing this, but it should take a few years at least. Um, and then once that happens, there's, uh, you know, environmentalists can sue in court. Um, and, and that there's going to be a number of challenges that Trump's going to face as he actually tries to make this happen. So, and, and you know, 
I'm not asking you to make a prediction of any sort, but how, what is the viability of those sort of challenges? Uh, Is is it a long shot? Is it a moonshot? Or is it a real legal contention here? Uh, So this is something that I've started to talk to some uh, environmental policy experts about. I think broadly the feeling is, uh, you know, if a president wants to do this, he can pull it off because in order to fight this, uh, basically what, what, uh, environmentalists have to show. So, so the, the original justification for the clean power plan was this, uh, law. We're all fucked if we don't pass it. (laughs) Sorry, I interrupted. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So, so, uh, so, so there's this law, the, the clean air act, and it says the, it's the EPA's job to sort of keep that atmosphere safe. And under Obama, the way that worked was, uh, the EPA said carbon dioxide is dangerous uh, and we're going to write this regulation, the Clean Power Plan, uh, in order to uh, in, in order to prevent too much carbon dioxide from getting into the air. And so now in order to fight that, environmentalists would have to say not only does the Clean Air Act give uh, the government the right to regulate carbon dioxide, uh, which is still an open question that's being challenged in court, but the Clean Air Act actually gives the government the responsibility to regulate uh, carbon dioxide and that in repealing the Clean Power Plan, uh, Trump is fail- Trump and Prude and uh, Prude's EPA are failing to protect the air as they're required to do under the Clean Air Act. Right. I mean, and, so like, is that legit? <laughs> do they that, have an argument? They have an argument. I mean, this is, you know, uh, groups like the National Resources Defense Council, the Sierra Club have teams of lawyers and they're they're really good at making arguments like this, uh, at sort of forcing uh, the executive branch in courts to take steps to regulate things that they uh, had not been regulating. And it, and it's a really long and complicated process. And there's many, many steps of the way when they where they can try to jam up uh, Trump's efforts here. But, uh, you know, that's a difficult thing. That isn't the way most environmental law gets made. Um, right. And if they want to if they want to make that work, you know, that they're going to that that is a challenge. And I don't feel like I can put the odds on you know, whether they're going to be able to convince a judge uh, to side with them. And then once they do convince a judge, they'll go to appeals. So both the process of repealing the Clean Power Plan and a number of the other regulations uh, that are sort of captured by this executive order will take years, but then also the process of fighting that effort will take years. Right. So it's a whole fucking thing. (laughs) It is a fucking thing. So... But that so that is the top line item of the executive order. Yeah. So yeah. So the executive order actually, I mean, basically the simplest way to think of it is is it is a point by point effort to tear up uh, former President Barack Obama's climate legacy. Uh, so there's the the Clean Power Plan, which was sort of the big project um, that process is going to begin to tear it up. Um, there's also going to be an effort to uh, reconsider carbon standards for coal plants. So right now uh, it's 
very difficult to build a new coal plant. You have to make it so carbon efficient, yes, or at least so little carbon that it's basically impossible to build a coal plant right now right. with uh, with sort of current technology. Uh, that's that's again a regulation um, that they're that they're going to have to change. But basically, what they're going to have to say is actually no, you can release you know more carbon dioxide. They won't say, oh, you can release however much carbon dioxide they want, because then environmentalists would have a very easy time suing them in court. But they're going to find some new lower standard that's a lot friendlier to industry. They'll probably work it out with industry because that's how Pruitt tends to work. Um, And then, uh, again, methane emissions. So methane tends to be released when you're sort of digging coal up out of the ground, digging natural gas up out of the ground. Um, And that's something where we don't methane is a much more potent gas than carbon dioxide, but we don't actually really know how much of it is being released in these operations that there's still a lot of open questions around methane pollution that had sort of just begun to be answered. There are all these rules just beginning to go onto the books around methane. Some of them had already been pulled off. Um, and it, what the executive order does basically is, begins the process of relaxing those rules even further um another big thing so so the uh there's this thing called the social cost of carbon and what that means basically is that there a federal judge had ordered uh the, the government already whenever the government begins some big project it does an environmental assessment of the project, what the environmental costs are going to be, what the impacts are going to be. Um, and But the government had not been taking sort of the carbon dioxide impact, uh, the greenhouse gas impact of these projects into account. And the judge said, no, that's breaking the law. You have to take that into account and uh, required the government to set a, to, to basically set a dollar amount, you know, how, how much harm does a ton of carbon released into the atmosphere do um, that will change over time, you know, as it becomes a bigger deal for every new ton. Um, but right now it's about $36 per ton. So that can right. add up when you're doing a project that's going to release tons and tons of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. Um, so the executive order says, look for ways to make that number lower because the judge ordered the government to set a number but it's the executive branch that actually gets to set the number. So they'll, uh, this is a process I admit I don't understand sort of the nooks and crannies of as completely, but but there's going to be this effort to find all these legal loopholes to pull that number down as much as possible, which again just gets into the Trump administration's larger philosophy of, you know, climate change, we don't pay for that anymore. Right, right. Um, so you mentioned earlier when you when you were talking about how uh, there were very strict standards on building new coal plants, yeah. which basically made it impossible to build one. Yep. Are there a lot of people itching to build new coal plants? <laughs> I, no. I, I mean, is that a big mark? I, I, but, you know, I'm trying to look at practical, you know, the practical effects of this executive order. Sure. Here. So, it, And it's... It doesn't seem, you know, just just for my own personal research, and and you could probably speak more to this. It doesn't seem like there's a big demand for more coal plants. Right, right. So it seems it certainly seems like our president Donald J. Trump uh, really thinks of coal miners. But you know, when he got up and spoke on inauguration day, he promised 
that he was going to remember the forgotten man of America, right? And it's right, clear right. that sort of in this aesthetic way, you know, these coal miners, when he signed the executive order, he was surrounded by coal miners. It's clear that coal miners are sort of, in his mind, the forgotten man. And right. that that's a big part of why he's doing this. Probably another big part of why he's doing this is because the best idea he has to boost the economy is to burn a lot of hydrocarbons. Uh, in the past, that's been a pretty good way to boost the economy. Um, but the, the thing is uh, that, first of all, there aren't that many places in the country where coal is a big industry. You know, West Virginia is probably the biggest place. There are other parts of sort of the eastern end of the Midwest they're they're like that um but but for the most part it, you know there's been some pretty good polling on this most people want in fact in every congressional district in the United States a majority of adults want stricter standards on coal plants that's from some really good research from the uh, Yale program on climate communication that really does a lot of depth oriented stuff on this that all over the country, people want less CO2 in the atmosphere. They want strict regulations uh, on carbon dioxide. They think global warming is happening. But there isn't a congressional district in the United States where people don't have that point of view. But at the same time, there also is not a congressional district in the United States uh, where a majority of adults even say they talk about climate change occasionally. So even though lots of people sort of, if you ask them in the back of their mind, do they think coal is a good idea? They'd say no. But the people who do think coal is a good idea, mostly people who profit off of coal in one way or another, people who do really well by sort of fossil fuel industries, they really like coal and it's going to be an issue that's really going to impact how they vote. So even though most people probably oppose this Trump policy on some level, few enough people care enough about it that honestly it probably wins him more votes than he loses. Right. Okay. So that is uh, disheartening. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yep. To say the least. So I, I'm wondering if you or some of your compatriots at Business Insider have heard any reaction from inside the EPA on some of these changes or proposed changes. Sure. So actually we have a, an enterprising news intern, uh, Madeline Sheehan Perkins. Uh, right. she, she, she went out and she, uh, she spoke to a number of uh, former EPA employees, people with environmental groups and one uh, anonymous, uh, I believe current EPA staffer um, about specifically the plan to repeal the clean power plan. And, and the reaction basically universally is this is terrible that that no one you know if you think about it, you don't join the epa the way typically the way scott pruitt did you know scott pruitt is someone who joined the epa at the top because he thinks the epa does too much and that by joining the epa that's a really good way for him to scale it back and he supported for example the trump budget which would cut uh, i don't have the number from you but i believe like a third of the epa's budget um, you know, really hamstringing an already very small uh, federal agency. But that's not the reason a person typically joins the EPA. If you join the EPA, you join it because you think, you know, pollution, disease, public health hazards, poison in the water, these are problems. <laughs> it, it, they're bad. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, the, you generally, you look, you look at a smokestack and you think, I'm against that. <laughs> yeah. 
in a big broad way. And, and so and so basically every we don't get a lot of word from people inside the EPA, but basically every word that has come out of the EPA, uh, both uh, through uh, Metalens reporting and then through reporting in other publications, is that people there are totally dispirited. That no one, no one wanted this. Um, they sort of there, there's a sense of shell shock. You know, this isn't the first administration that has pushed for sort of lighter environmental standards, but this isn't a sort of in the way you know between. Uh, president like Obama and a president like George W. Bush, you might see lighter environmental standards. This is really an abdication of everything the government has been doing for about the last decade. Oh, so it's it's that extreme. It, it goes beyond sort of a, your typical partisan differences. And the the sense is that it's a whole new beast. Sure. Well, it's. I mean, this certainly there is a action within the Republican Party that has basically, uh, you know, Representative Lamar Smith of Texas, uh, you, you, you have you have these uh, very prominent Republican politicians who have really pushed an agenda that looks like this for a while. But this really represents, you know, what sort of the most extreme position out there Um on you know what could be done with the EPA, or just about the most extreme. There's a guy, Myroni My Bell, who's probably the most extreme, who wanted it, uh, who wanted it slashed from 15,000 employees to 5,000. He helped out on the Trump uh, transition. It's not going quite that far, but this is an executive order to basically defang the EPA as a regulatory body. Right. Um, so, what if anything? Could a normal person or, or, or your average citizen, beyond you know, blowing up the phone lines of their elected representatives, what could they do? Sure. So, first of all, I, I have to say, you know, I, I'm not an activist. I'm a I'm a reporter, so so I'm not going to tell anyone what they should do. Right. But the you know, I, I wrote this article. There was sort of here are the four roadblocks that stand between uh, that stand between sort of the vision. In presenting this executive order and it becoming reality, and, and, and we'll put a link up to that in the episode. Great, yeah. So the first one, real quick, is uh, uh, this is uh, it's the federal bureaucracy, um, and uh, that that's sort of what we already discussed. That there's this long regulatory process. The second was the courts. The third one is Congress, and you know, in theory, you know, this is an executive order. Congress writes laws. Laws are infinitely more powerful than executive orders. A Congress can write a law, um, pass it, uh, get signed by the president, or if they're really committed, you know, overcome a presidential veto and force the and force the president's hand uh, to right. have a different policy. Right now, that's almost certainly not going to happen. Most especially because there's really very little political momentum around this issue that, um, you know, for example, you compare it to the healthcare bill, people were turning up at town halls. They were, like you said, they were blowing up the phone lines. Um, and so there was a majority in Congress comprised of Democrats and then Republicans who weren't willing to serve moderate Republicans who weren't willing to get on board that sank the bill. You could imagine a scenario where that a sort of similar coalition of moderate Republicans and, Demo and the Democrats working as a bloc could write a bill that, that would at least push back against this. But that 
with the absence of political uh, momentum on this issue, that's very unlikely to happen. So uh, for people who oppose actions like these, I mean, the, the most powerful thing they can do is vote in 2018. But the second most powerful thing they can do is work to de develop that momentum, that that would be the thing that would be sort of most likely to turn the direction of government. Right. I mean, it, it's sort of this strange thing that, you know, climate change is maybe the most apocalyptic issue we deal with, but there, there is not much political energy behind it. Yeah. Right now. Yeah. yeah In any it, real sort of way. And it, this, uh, this, th there's sort of an open question as to why that is. I, I mean, climate change is definitely something that gets talked about a lot in the media. I, I think sort of from a really, well, well okay. So, so from the, that, uh, survey data from the, that program at Yale, one of the things they found is that while a majority of Americans believe that uh, climate change will eventually uh, hurt other Americans. They, A, don't believe that, the majority don't believe that uh, other Americans are being hurt by climate change right now, which isn't true. And B, there isn't, there, there, or rather, there are really only a very few con uh, congressional districts or counties in the United States where a majority of Americans even believe that they will eventually be impacted. That most places, people think, oh, climate change is something that's going to happen somewhere else to some other people. Somewhere else to some other people when I'm dead. Yes. Yes. And so... All right. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I, you know, it, for, for if you're somebody who cares about this, it's sort of, you just got to motivate people. It seems yeah. to be the, the, uh, the answer here. Yeah, I, and that's... You know, if uh, if someone figures out the trick to motivate people to care about climate change, uh, that they're, you know, that they, they should send that along because that's something that a lot of people have been struggling to do for a long time. And it seems like no one has really cracked that nut yet. Right. So is this the sort of thing? How scared should I be a Scott Pruitt? Is, is part of, is the other part of my question because you know, you hear from folks on the right that it, it's just a, you know, he's just returning power to the states, you know, sure. he's just trying to decentralize it, that that he's less of an ideologue than he seems like. Is that fair? And I'm not asking you to editorialize. I guess do, do the facts reflect that assurance or not really? Well, so there's there's Scott Pruitt and there's Donald Trump, right? So right, it seems. I think you can say pretty conclusively that in his short time as leader of the EPA and in all of his sort of work and writing uh, before becoming chief of the EPA, Scott Pruitt has not, that I'm aware of, done anything to demonstrate an interest in regulating the environment. Uh, for, for example, there's this uh, pesticide, this pesticide that, you know, you've probably consumed. It's been widely used all over the United States for decades. Um, but it's been found it was it used to be used uh, indoors in homes. They stopped doing that because they found that was very dangerous. Um, but it's been found that even just the fact that it's being used as a pesticide, it's causing brain damage in, you know, babies, uh, young children and farm workers, people who actually uh, deal with this stuff because it gets into the water supply. They, they found it. 
the way they realized uh, that the, the way they first realized that this was really a problem, even after um, it had really been moved only to the farms, was that there were women in the Bronx, uh, pregnant women in the Bronx, who was turning up in their uh, umbilical cords. Oh, jeez. Um, so, so this is you know a dangerous pesticide, and uh, it came out yesterday that uh, that. Uh, the EPA under Pruitt has re- basically reversed the findings um, that had come to previously about a year ago that this is a serious danger um, and decided, you know what, we're uh, we're not going to regulate this. We're not we're not going to ban the, the use of this on farms um, and that the, the science is inconclusive. And that has typically been Pruitt's line when he's sort of asked to regulate something that he doesn't want to regulate is, oh, well, the science is inconclusive. And uh, that seems like the mode from which he's going to reg- to leave EPA. Right. Aye. <laughs> <laughs> and that's, and, and, you know, it is, it, it, if you are, if you are, if you are someone who is interested in sort of drinking clean water, breathing clean air, it is clear that regulations from the EPA have mattered, you know, in American history. There have certainly been instances where the EPA has failed, and I'm sure there are instances where, uh, uh, where, where the EPA has, you know, you can make a strong case that the EPA has gone beyond its mandate, but it's also clear that that the world before the EPA existed was more poisonous, more deadly, um, and it's it's not exactly clear what the outcome will be of a sort of absentee EPA. But I think we're all going to get to see that. We're 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 going to find out what happens when there's not really, yeah, somebody on the, uh, you know, <laughs> when there's not somebody behind the wheel. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I guess I'm I'm wondering. In terms of how the EPA is structured, how much can a, let's say, obstinate bureaucracy do to kind of keep the EPA at the forefront of this sort of regulating? Is there much it could do? Can it kind of, you know, no pun intended or no joke intended, resist sort of the whims of its administrator? Or is it sort of at... Does it kind of have to do what he says? I mean, the EPA... EPA kind of has to do what he says because what the EPA does is you know it does science to sort of figure out what kind of regulations would be useful or what kind of cleanup project would be useful it goes and does those projects or goes and writes those regulations it puts them through uh the regulatory process and at the end of the EPA I mean Pruitt is basically king of his domain there's no one within the EPA structure with the power to overrule him. Um, I think as in any bureaucracy, there are people who can sort of slow things down they don't like. I think that it's pretty clear that happens across the government. Hashtag um, deep state. <laughs> tag deep state. And, you know, and, you know the, the example would be, uh, you know, at NASA, for, uh, NASA is this big earth science program that kept doing climate change work under George W. Bush, who, while not as extreme as Trump, was certainly interested in sort of tamping that down. Right. Um, And I spoke to a scientist who's been part of that program uh, for a little over 20 years, and he 
basically, uh, or a little under 20 years, um, he, he basically said, you know, we were able to keep doing our science because there's no one at the top who's going to reach their hands all the way down. But uh, the EPA isn't as big an agency. Uh, NASA wasn't headed by someone like Pruitt under Bush. Uh, NASA right. was headed by a pretty typical NASA administrator. And uh, Pruitt, especially if something like these big budget cuts that the Trump administration is proposing for the EPA, which are harsher for the EPA than any other federal agency goes through, I mean, it is hard to see much in the way of quote-unquote resistance going on because, I, I, I for, for example, the former head of the EPA, the head of the EPA under Obama, what she, Gina McCarthy, she said, uh, you know, if you cut more funds, if you cut uh, about $2 billion in funding uh, from the EPA, that's all the budget we have to do policing. The, the EPA is at the bare bones. And what her argument was that if you take any more money away, policing just isn't going to happen. That anyone who wants to break the rules and pollute is basically going to get away with it. So in that kind of environment, it's really hard for me to see, you know, a, say a Sally Yates scenario where someone's able to stand up and actually cause a problem for Pruitt. Right, right. And so how how are states equipped to handle that sort of... Do states have their own environmental protection agencies? Yeah, or? yeah states... Some states... I, I'm actually not 100% sure whether they all call it environmental protection agencies. Right. States, states have their, all, their own environmental sort of regulatory bodies... And there are some states, uh, California is the most prominent example of this, where they are really activist about this. California basically sets the uh, uh, sort of car fuel efficiency standards for the whole country. It has an impact on them because it sets a stricter standard um, than the rest of the country. And that impacts because, you know, California is the uh, most economically powerful state that impacts how the whole country gets their cars. Um, right. And, uh, and you have a, and so the, the, there's certainly a degree to which, you know, states can on their own influence and shift environmental policy like that. And then you also have state attorney generals, which is what Scott Pruitt was before he took over the agency. He was the Oklahoma state attorney general can are probably the most powerful people who can file lawsuits to sort of fight back against, uh, environmental regulatory changes that they feel are inappropriate. Um, although there's not much they can do about budget cuts to the EPA. But then the other big problem is different states have different politics. So, uh, for example, you're, I presume, calling me from Chicago. I uh, am. Chicago is on a Great Lake. Uh, it's There's wetlands in Chicago. Um, I One of the biggest scientific projects the EPA funds, I actually spoke to the scientist who heads up this project pretty recently, and he's devastated. Um, uh, and basically what it does is it's an attempt to sort of build this comprehensive map of uh, the ecosystems of the wetlands all around the Great Lakes. So that's, uh, I believe, eight U.S. states and then several Canadian provinces. And, it, and it's this big $10 million over 10 years project to, to do this really big assessment. It has impacts on drinking water. It has impacts all across the Great Lakes region. Um, that's basically going to be defunded. And this isn't the executive order, but this is the budget cuts that Trump's proposing. So if something resembling those budget cuts goes through, that project's over. 
Um, right. And, and what he what he was saying is, you know, scientists will pay out of pocket or get other grants, you know, do whatever they can to keep doing the work. But without the EPA kind of pushing things from the top, you know, Illinois might say, oh, our Great Lakes are really important to us. But Wisconsin can say, ah, no, we didn't think this project was too important anyway. And, you know, we want to build a golf course uh, on this wetland. So we're just going to pave it over. Uh, and it becomes really hard when all the states aren't moving together right. to, ha um, to have anything in the way of sort of a concerted environmental effort. Right, it all becomes just a mishmash and collage of different uh, yep. issues. Yeah, and this is, and this to a degree is the vision that some people in the Republican Party have. Uh, there's this uh, uh, congressman, um, Matt Gates, uh, who put forward a bill to abolish the EPA actually a little while ago. Um, and his argument, and he's from Florida, which, you know, is a state that benefits a great deal from the environmental protection the EPA provides. His argument was that, the, oh, well, the states are better equipped to do this work because they know, uh, you know, what is needed in their local area. But the response that you'll hear from, for example, uh, senators from New England will say, you know, we don't put a lot of uh, – pollution into the air in New England, but we're downwind of a lot of states that put a great deal of pollution in, into the air. And uh, if we don't have a body like EPA protecting us at a federal level, there's very little we can do to protect ourselves. You know, Rhode Island doesn't have much of a say in uh, what's in the wind that gets blown over, you know, all the way from Pennsylvania or Ohio. Right. Right, right. Uh, well, okay. I, I I was hoping to be comforted. I was not comforted, but I do have more information, so that's good. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm sorry. This is the my second time on this podcast. I feel like I haven't been very comforting other times. No, that's why. That's when I call you. I call you to explain the existential <laughs> dangers to me. You know, just to bring you all the way down, John. No, I'm, I'm fine. I'll be okay. <laughs> it, it doesn't affect me, right? That's what I told that pollster. It sure, doesn't affect sure. me. I don't vote on it. Yeah, thank thank goodness you don't live in a city that's on a Great Lake uh, where the water quality is impacted by uh, yeah. you know, changes. And thank God uh, you don't live on a city that's a literal island Yeah, and, and I'm would reading, be flooded. <laughs> I'm reading it. For, for people who care about these issues, I strongly recommend. There's a book I'm reading right now called New York 2140 by a guy called Kim Stanley Robinson. It's a fiction book. <laughs> Uh-oh. Uh-oh. It, it, it imagines a world where New York is like kind of like Venice, where uh, where I am, where I'm calling you from, Washington Heights, is uh, you know pretty safe. It's up in the air, but uh, all of Lower Manhattan is underwater, and people get around in boats. It's an interesting vision of our future. Well, boats are fun. Boats are fun. <laughs> so maybe it won't be so bad. <laughs> maybe it won't. Maybe it won't. I I think. Yeah, I, I mean, I think no matter what, one of the things you and I are going to see in our lifetimes uh, is how human beings figure out how to adapt to all of this. Because I think the odds of us doing anything to substantially mitigate it in the near future uh, are pretty low. And this is all of the research says, you know, we're really running out of time if we want to even limit uh, the uh, – 
global temperature increase to like about two degrees Celsius that we're really, it may be too late for that. We may be running out of time. And with each additional degree, the effects get more intense. So we're, we're going to see how humanity adjusts to that. Right. I think that's going to be, you know, when we look back 50 years from now, that's going to be the most significant historical event we'll have witnessed in our lifetimes. Yep. All righty. Well, thank you so much for coming on, Rafi. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank for, you, thank you for breaking down some of this stuff. All right. I'll, yeah. ta- I'll talk to you soon, man. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 Bye.